in Luke's sequel. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and then followed with the Acts of the Apostles. We are in chapter 19 in our regular reading, and we will read verses 1 through 10 this morning and preaching chiefly upon the first seven verses. Let us pray. God and Father, we thank you that you are kind and merciful, slow to anger, full of compassion, that you indeed have pity upon us as you see us making our bold approach to your throne of grace. O gracious God, for the sake of your dear Son, our great high priest, our elder brother, who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, to magnify and glorify his work in mediation toward us sinners, hear our prayer. Grant us ears to hear, hearts to believe, wills to obey. Straighten our way on that pilgrim road to the city that is without foundations, whose builder is God. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us all that we need today to receive what you have spoken and grant us to recognize the voice of our master, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of God. We may need a placard for the building behind me that says Hall of Tyrannus. Praise God for the foresight of Tyrannus. But that is not what the message is about today. In our reading this morning, we have come upon a very strange scene. In one sense, it is a scene that is utterly unique in the book of Acts. It is the only place the author of Acts, who is Luke, carefully records people being rebaptized. Paul finds 12 men 
living near the city of Ephesus, who had been baptized according to the command of John the Baptist, but who had not received Christian baptism. They had not been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power and presence of Christ's risen life had not been bestowed upon them. So in one sense, this scene is utterly unique in Acts. These men are baptized, but they are not baptized. It is like they got trapped in a closet of salvation history. At one point in time, they were in the house with everyone else, but the house was not done. And while they were sleeping in the house, construction was finished. And when they woke up, they woke up in a closet. A closet had been built around them, and they didn't even know it was a closet. They thought that tight little space was the house. Paul now comes along and lets them out of the closet. He brings them out into the fullness, into the largeness of the gospel age, which Christ has built, which Christ has completed, the age of the Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But there is a sense in which the scene before us is not unique in the book of Acts. Because we have here, once again, what looks like a reenactment of Pentecost, which took place back in Acts 2. Here in Acts 19, we once again have an emphasis upon the outpouring of the Spirit, an emphasis on water baptism, and an emphasis upon signs and wonders, speaking in tongues. All those things are emphasized in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost has been reasserted on other occasions in Luke's report, <clears throat> the book of Acts. In Acts 8, in fact, there was a little Pentecost in Samaria. The apostles at Jerusalem heard that several people in Samaria had received and believed the word of the gospel. So the apostles sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the Samaritans who had become believers, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Those believers had already been baptized before Peter and John got there. But they had not received the Spirit. So Peter and John prayed. They laid hands upon those Samaritans, baptized them, and indeed, they received the Holy Spirit with visible manifestations of the Spirit's presence and power. Now, another version of Pentecost took place in the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. In Acts 10, while Peter was preaching there in the house, the Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and they began speaking in tongues. Just like in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. Just like in Acts 8 in Samaria. And seeing this, Peter says, Can anyone withhold water? for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The just as we have is a reference to Pentecost, Acts 2. The household of Cornelius is then baptized in the name of Jesus. So now we come to Acts 19, the city of Ephesus. We come upon another 
reenactment of sorts of Pentecost among 12 men who did not know the Holy Spirit had been poured out in Jerusalem, according to Acts 2. So why is Luke bringing this situation to our attention? Well, one answer must be that Acts 19, 1 through 10 is being set before the church for the same reason those other Pentecost reenactments or reassertions have been set before the church. Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 2, of course. And what is that reason, that these have all been set before us? Well, Luke is showing us that Jesus Christ, from heaven, is fulfilling his own great commission, as declared in Acts chapter 1-8. Jesus said to his apostles, right before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit first appears in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Then it is extended like a new embassy in Samaria, Acts 8. Then it is extended again like a new embassy among the Gentiles, Acts 10 in the house of Cornelius. And then it is extended again in Ephesus, Acts 19, among these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. Luke is showing us that the risen Christ himself is reaching and gathering the whole world to himself, from Jerusalem to Samaria to the Gentile nations, just as he promised he would. Not every soul is being gathered without exception, but he is gathering every soul without distinction. He is gathering both Jew and Gentile. He is gathering those with no religion and those with some religion. Christ is gathering all his elect. Christ will let none of them, his elect, get lost to time or to chance or to accident. He will let none of them get lost in the closet. He will let none of his elect get trapped in there where his own presence and power is not their experience of the living God. He is jealous this way for his elect, for his body. What was their experience with God, these 12 men in Ephesus? Their experience of God was mediated through John the Baptist and his baptism of repentance. You heard that in our reading. Now, this was good, but it was only a start. This was not a finish. It was not a fulfillment. This is where we need to recall what Jesus once said himself about John the Baptist. In Luke 7, verse 28, our Lord said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Why was John so great? Because all the prophets who came before John pointed to the door of the house from a very great distance away. John, however, was right at the door. 
He was knocking on the door. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was pushing the door. He was opening the door. John had come to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the people for the coming judgment of God in his messianic servant. But you, did you hear what our Lord said? You are even greater than he. You, now that Christ has come, you are now actually on the other side of the door, you and I. The new covenant has been fulfilled for us. We are inside the kingdom of the risen Christ. This is why you are even greater than John. You are fully inside the house that Christ has built with his own body and blood. So the baptism of John the baptizer was a good start. It was not a finish. It was a baptism of repentance, our text says. To come to John for baptism was to say, God's judgment against my sin is just. God is right in all he says about how wrong I am. That's what they were saying when they came out to be baptized by John in the Jordan. I must change. I must repent. God is coming to judge the earth. This is made quite clear in the words of Luke, the words that come right after what Jesus just said about the greatness of John the Baptist. Here, Luke 7, 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The baptism of John was a very good start for all who could hear the door of the kingdom being unlocked from the inside. The Lord is coming. He's about to open the door. John's baptism said, there's something wrong with me. Lord, change me. Deliver me from thy coming judgments. But Christian baptism says something far, far better than John's baptism. Baptism in the name of Jesus says God has taken taken your debt of sin to the cross. God was crucified. God has crucified. God has crucified you with Christ. That's what Christian baptism says. God has buried you with Christ into death. That's what Christian baptism says. God has raised you with Christ into life. That's what Christian baptism says. You are now cleansed of guilt, cleansed of sin, and alive in the risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christian baptism says. Death no longer has dominion over you. Your sins are forgiven. Your judgment is over. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That is what Christian baptism says. I want to go back to that question. 
Why does Luke bring this situation in Acts 19, 1 through 10, to our attention? The answer we have so far is that Luke is showing the inadequacy, the inadequacy of John's baptism. John's baptism was a sign. It was not the reality the sign was pointing to. John the baptizer clarifies this himself in Luke 3.16. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Christ, not John, pours the Spirit out on the church. This, of course, is what is signified and sealed upon us in Christian baptism. By faith, you freely and fully have become partakers of Christ's own heavenly life, which he obtained for you by offering himself a sacrifice for sin on the cross and rising from death in power up to the right hand of God. He brings his risen life now to you through the Holy Spirit. And by the power of his indestructible life, you experience all the righteousness, all the peace, all the joy that he himself possesses as son of the Most High God. That means your mode of existence in the same world that he passed through, your mode of existence is the same as his own. A beloved son a beloved child of the Most High God in perfect, reconciled communion with the Father of all righteousness and power. This is what Christ has given to you in your adoption through the Holy Spirit. Now, this brings up one more question for this morning. And now, after I say this question, test me and see if I ask four more questions. To live up to our motto, this is the Church of the Bonus. But one more big question. Why wasn't the Holy Spirit poured out like this before Pentecost? Or to ask the question another way, why wasn't the Holy Spirit available to these 12 men of Ephesus through the ministry of John the Baptist? Answer, the Holy Spirit is only poured out on the whole church in abundance after Christ's resurrection. Because the Spirit is only a gift to us from Christ after he brings our human nature into an estate of glory. This is simply and beautifully explained in John 7, 37, where our Lord says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, this these are John's words now. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What Jesus Christ has just told us is that his resurrection glory is mediated to all believers through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is why the Holy Spirit is given to us. 
He has given so we might richly and experientially share in the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Now that he has brought our human nature to its highest and most glorious condition. Now as a divine person of the Godhead from all eternity, Jesus was always glorious, right? He was always equal in glory and power with the Father and the Spirit. Since there was never a time when the Son was not, the Son was always glorious in his divinity. But through his incarnation, being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the divine Son took the form of a servant. He joined to his divine nature a human nature. This put him in a very low condition. As Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does it mean that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation? Does that sound like a question? I think it's a bonus. What does it mean he became the source of eternal salvation? The answer is in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, among other places. Paul says there, when Jesus was resurrected and glorified, he, quote, became a life-giving spirit. This means by his resurrection and enthronement in heaven, Jesus, the divine son, has been awarded the full measure of the spirit, for he is the first man who has brought human flesh to perfection before God. He is now life-giving spirit. With a glorified humanity, a first-fruits humanity, Jesus now gives a measure of that new creation humanity, which he possesses in its totality. He now gives a measure of that new creation humanity to each one of us believers. He sends into the present age that which belongs to the future age. The technical term for this is eschatological life, the life that belongs to the age after this age ends. But Jesus is already in that eschatological age, and he is giving us a deposit of it and a taste of its power by giving us the Holy Spirit. As Richard Gaffin Jr. said, the Holy Spirit is the first installment of eschatological existence, life in the age to come. But don't miss this. That eschatological existence, that age-to-come existence, it is first and foremost in the glorified God-man. And never before was it in human flesh until it was in him. He is preeminent. This is what lies at the heart of Paul's question in Acts 19.2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul is investigating, isn't he? 
He is investigating whether or not their faith is only in the promised Christ, a Christ who has not yet come and has not yet accomplished their redemption, a Christ who has not yet been glorified. He's investigating whether that is the Christ they think about as disciples of John. Or is their faith caught up with reality? Are they out of the closet? Turns out they're not. But Paul's investigating. Is theirs a faith in the present Christ, who is the risen Christ, who is the glorified Christ, who is the indwelling Christ? To confess Jesus as Lord is to confess his resurrection glory. That's what that three-word confession means. Jesus is Lord over all creation, over life and death itself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Paul is testing the faith of these men. Now, we might ask, why didn't Jesus just give these 12 men the Spirit anyway? Why did he just find them from his heavenly throne on the day of Pentecost and let his spirit fall upon them on that day like a meteor. Now, does that sound like another question? Answer. A king, Christ the king, does not rule his subjects in such a way that his word and sacraments are ignored by him. He does not send the Spirit upon these 12 men apart from the teaching and preaching of Paul who is asking them questions and explaining to them where they are and where they have been, and then he baptizes them. Christ the King. In fact, no king rules his subjects apart from his word, apart from his officers, apart from his sacraments. Nor does he ignore this king, Christ the king, the instrument of faith, which comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Lord Jesus, word and sacrament, because there is a king administering a covenant of grace upon the earth, blessing a people with the powers of the age to come. And he does it by these means. Now, with that said, let us understand something. The Spirit is the gift and presence of the risen Christ from the age to come, intruding into this age. Sometimes you'll hear theologians say, we live in the already but not yet. This is exactly what they're referring to. That the Spirit is a gift from the age to come, the age after this present age, the age at the end of the age. Let us understand that the Spirit is not just some unattached divine power that we need to come to faith. That would be true, but a very reductionistic truth. The Spirit is 
a gift of the age to come from the life-giving spirit, the man of that age who has already taken our human nature into glory and now being full of the spirit in an incarnate body pours out upon us who are carnate, that which is of the age to come. Richard Gaffin, one more time. Paul's thinking concerning the spirit moves out of the future into the present rather than the reverse. That is, the future is not so much an extension of the present, though it can be said that way, but the present is an anticipation of the future. Oh, when this gets into your bones, beloved, you you stop looking lowly upon holiness. You stop taking holiness lightly. That you are more a companion of angels and the risen Christ than you are of worldlings when this truth gets into your bones, your holiness and sanctification is greatly helped by faith. When we set our minds to thinking carefully about the Holy Spirit, we must come to realize that the Holy Spirit is the eschatological spirit. To make the same point, in other words, we can say the Holy Spirit's presence and work in the church today is not so much about preparing us for the future, but rather bringing the future to us, putting the future into us, putting Christ in us. That is what the Spirit brings to us, not a slightly better version of our old selves, but the glorious new man, Jesus Christ. And to be even more specific, the future which the Holy Spirit is already putting into us is the future of that man who is now glorified in our nature, Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls life-giving spirit. Is there a passage of scripture that helps us see this bringing the future to us work of the Spirit of God? Well, there are many, but here's one of the best. Very, very helpful for clarity on this very point. That the Spirit brings the future to us, in us. He brings Christ glorified in our humanity to us, in our humanity. Matthew 12, 28, where Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This verse shows that the activity of God's Spirit is a present manifestation of his eschatological rule. The kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom of the age to come, which will be full and consummated on a sudden day that no man knows the hour of, that kingdom is already upon you because the Spirit of God is in you which is the spirit of Christ. <clears throat> and so this is why Hebrews 6.5 6, 5 says that in the church we have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Well, one last question. Whoops. I'm having fun with you, but maybe you're not. One last question. How then do I know that I have the spirit of God? Well, you heard the foundational answer. Did you not? 
don't confirm that answer only in the book of Acts, because Acts is a very transitional book. Confirm it in the apostles and prophets. And you heard the foundational answer earlier. Without the Spirit of God, no man can confess Jesus is Lord. Having that on your tongue is better than speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a manifestation of Christ's resurrection that is now over. But confessing that Jesus is Lord before men is something the Spirit of God easily draws out of those in whom he dwells. He draws it out of our mouth before men, before kings, before relatives, before towering sportsmen, uncles, who are impressive in every way, but are without faith. He draws that even out of us before them. That is the presence of the Spirit of God. Jesus is Lord. He has been risen from the dead, and he is the Lord over heaven and earth. But also hear what our Lord Jesus himself said in John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And living waters will, living rivers of water will flow from your heart. He said this concerning the Spirit who had not yet been given because he had not yet been glorified. But we're out of the closet. He has been glorified. The Spirit has been given. That means we are no longer thirsty. The Spirit has refreshed us has satiated us. With what? With all the dry, bitter fear, the parched fear that we are not reconciled to God, that we are orphans in the world. Christ has said, my spirit will fill your heart, that you are at peace with God through my body and blood, that you are not orphans in the world, that whatever befalls you here below shall not keep you from me or my age to come. Beloved, praise God for his gifts. Let's pray.